Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. How are we today? If you want to and you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 7. Let me tell you where we've been, where we're going. So we've been in a series since Easter called Greater Life. And what we're doing is we're presupposing, we made the argument on Easter, that the death and resurrection of Jesus didn't point to a future reality, but a present one that he's unfolding in the middle of this one. What we mean is that the life that Jesus talks about, the fullness of life that he came to bring, doesn't just start when you die and you get to heaven. But Jesus' message seemingly was when we live out his rhythms and his ways, we get to be a part of, we get to see glimpses of heaven here. That's why we pray, heaven come near in the Lord's Prayer. That's why Jesus talks about unfolding realities in the middle of this one that points to the greatness of God. And so we started looking at, in the Sermon on the Mount, different ways that Jesus calls us to live out his rhythms and his ways in the middle of systems and structures that we already know. We started talking about what it might look like if we live out the culture of Jesus in the middle of ours, and maybe we paint a picture of a life that's more filling, of a life that was created to be good. And so we talked about what that means for church and religion a few weeks ago in Matthew 6, and then we moved into our ideals and our proclivity and our gravity towards material stuff in a world driven by stuff and what God says about that. We talked about kind of where our heart should be in the whole process and this week we're going to talk about something I think we are also really, really good at as Americans and that's judgment. (laughs) I think we're really good at judging things and I know this because again, I have a TV just like you. I had a boss uh, who hired me here. He was a youth pastor over high school kids, and he had high school daughters. Okay, that is scary. And, and he would always say this mantra, and I thought it was brilliant. He said, if you want to know who your kids are, who they really are, because they can put on a game face like anybody else, if you want to know who your kids are, look at who their friends are. Every time that will tell you with accuracy who they are. Every time. And so he always had an open-door policy. If your friends want to hang out, our house is always open. We will always buy the pizza, come and hang out here. Because it was his way of getting to know who his daughters were, regardless of what they told him, regardless of how many youth group meetings they went to that week. And it was pretty good. And so when I say we're a judgmental culture, I know on the one hand we are because most of the TV shows that I see advertisements for are all about judging things. I'm judging your voice. I'm judging your talents. I'm judging how pretty you are on an island in St. Lucia with a bunch of other pretty people that we call The Bachelor, you know? I'm judging everything about what you do. I'm judging how you cook. I'm judging how you bake. I'm just judging all the time. We are, and we like to be, a judgmental culture. In fact, it... it, it much like culture does, it shapes and forms our experience with God. So most stats I read tell me that new people at this church or any church make their mind up in 10 minutes or less if they're going to come back again. 10 minutes. That means we got 10 minutes from when you walk in the door before you hear a song. Let's be honest, we're all late. It's probably three songs in. That's okay. God loves you, right? But before you hear a song or before you hear me teach and decide to leave anyway, you've already made up your mind if you're going to stay. I had a professor in college who taught a preaching course. It was my first one. I always thought growing up that if I was going to take courses on preaching, it had to be from an African-American man just because they were the best at it, you know? 
And so he was an African-American man, and he looked at me, and he said, Charlie? I said, yeah. He said, the very best speakers, the best speakers, people listen to for a minute before they decide if they're going to keep listening. You're not them. You have 30 seconds. <laughs> I said, appreciate you, Winford Neely. You know, <laughs> just brutal honesty. It was great, man. I love that guy. I took three more preaching classes from him. But the idea is that we're going to judge all that we do. You're going to judge this church in 10 minutes. If you're new, you probably have decided by now whether or not you're going to listen to me in 30 seconds. It's why I talk so fast. I want to get in as much as I can before you decide to tune me out. All right? And so we sit here as a culture and we judge, as a church and we judge. And I know it's true. I mean, yesterday, for example, I, this sermon for most people is for me more just because I am an extremely judgmental person. And I know it. And sometimes I don't realize it. I was in an airport yesterday, stuck there for about 10-ish hours with a nine-month-old daughter and my family. And I'm just lucky to have my in-laws with me because you can just hand the kid off, you know? Trying to write a sermon in the middle of that. I thought I wasn't going to make it back. I'm trying to schedule a plan B around here, which we don't know what that was going to be. A lot of silence, though, you know? (laughs) And on-time departures, which we didn't have yesterday. So um, we uh, were trying to figure out what today was going to look like. And let me tell you something, man. I'm the most judgmental when I'm tired and want to be somewhere else. I go through an airport like it's my job. It's my job to measure people up on how good they are based on how they go through TSA. You know, I can tell you if you're a good parent. I can tell you if you're a planner. I can tell why did you wear shoelaces with 17 laces? You knew those bad boys had to come off, right? Is this your first time? And I sit there in the terminal and I watch everybody that walks by and I judge them. And I judge what they're wearing and I make backstories about them. And I judge the shoes that they wear, and if they got Crocs on, my head explodes, you know? It's this idea that we are intrinsically judgmental. Here's the problem with that. The problem is, that hasn't escaped us as Christians either, not just the church experience, but us as Christians. The problem is that right now, the church in America is dying. It's dying. There's a small subset that's growing, but for the most part, it is not getting bigger. It is getting smaller. And most people my age and younger are going to say they don't feel comfortable walking into a church because they feel when they walk in the building, they are judged and not loved. Right? Now, we've got to decide whether that's true or not. We've got to decide what to do about that. But that's just the reality of the world that we live in and the world that we are calling people into. We, as a Christian community, are more known for how we judge people and not how we call people to life. And so today, we're going to talk about what Jesus says about judgment. We're going to talk about what a role of judgment is in our churches, what it is in our communities, if we should do it at all, if it's just God's job. We're going to talk about what it means to judge and to judge well. So before we do that, I'm going to need to pray a little bit. You're going to need to pray a little bit. We believe and want two things to happen at Crossroads every Sunday morning. The first is we want to know God, so we open up God's word, fully knowing and understanding that we can never reach the end of the character of God. We can never know fully, I've got everything I need to know about God, and it's a beautiful thing because I need my God to be bigger than me. I need it. If he's not bigger than me, he's not worth worshiping. And so when we open the scripture, and today we're going to be in a story you've probably heard before, I need you to know that God still has something for you in the middle of this text. And we trust that as I teach, it's not a one-man show. The Spirit's doing work in you. So you ask questions. You trust the Holy Spirit that is active to shape your soul into the ways and rhythms of Jesus so that we might proclaim with all that we are that Jesus is good and there's a greater life out there. And then two, when that happens, we worship. We want to experience God and and know God. And that is a fully formed individual because God made us with emotions. We don't run away from them. We run towards them because they heighten our joys and our pleasure in the God who is worth worshiping. And so we're going to take some time and and we're just going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to pray silently to yourself if you're comfortable. 
I'm going to ask that you pray for um, the Spirit to do work on you this morning. You might leave this place more edified than when you came in. I'm going to ask that you pray for me because I spent 10 hours in an airport yesterday instead of writing a sermon. All right, so let's, let's pray today. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for days of celebration. I'm thankful that we can, on days like this, see how you've been faithful and have hope in tomorrow because you've been faithful yesterday. I pray as we open your scripture today and talk about judgment. I'm sure it's an issue that we've all felt before in the church and out of it. You give us grace. I pray that you show us where we need to grow and move and change so that we might accurately reflect the ways of Jesus and the life he called us into. I'd ask you to take a couple seconds now and just silently pray for you that the Spirit might do a work in you, that you might be edified this morning as we look to Jesus. Then I'd ask that you pray for me that what I say might be encouraging and uplifting and edifying. May it accurately portray God's intention in the text and God's character in our day-to-day lives. And all God's people said, amen. Now we're in it together. Open your Bibles if you got it. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 1. This idea of judgment is woven throughout our text today. So before we dive into the text, let's talk about two responses to the idea of judgment. One I think that we see in the Christian church or have seen in the past and one that we live in today in the present. So let's start with the present. So I think when we come to the idea of judgment, there seemingly is two ways to look at it, juxtaposed natures to how we see the role of judgment in the Christian life. And the first one is quite simply just, it's not your job to judge, so don't. You've heard this, I have a lot, excuse me, especially lately, but the judgment role is saved for God and it's not our role. I hear it a lot in our culture today, and we pull scriptures to prove our point, right? So James 4, verse 12 says there's only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. On the other hand, who are you to judge your neighbor? Or our text today begins with, do not judge so that you will not be judged. It's a simple idea that our job is not to judge, so don't ever do it. And I've heard that, right? This one idea is to stay away from it altogether. And it comes from, I think, a couple different places culturally. So to not get into it too much, there was... The era of enlightenment, the age of enlightenment, or the age of reason in the 17th and 18th century. It was started essentially by a guy named Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am, which basically meant I know that I exist not because God gives life, but because I can reason my way to proving that life exists. And so as reason in the age of reason took over the metaphysical side of things, we began to believe in reason more than we believed in God. It weighted reason more than it weighted the things of the metaphysical, in this sense, God, or what we believe about the scriptures. And it got to the point at the height of it when a, a, a philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, said, God is dead. If you've taken any philosophy 101 course, you've heard it. And what he meant when he said God is dead is he, he didn't mean that God was literally dead. He meant that as a society, we've now killed our need for God to, to ground our culture. 
And it led to a couple things. The first thing it led to is the privatization of your religious view, which means that because religion isn't weighted as much as reason anymore, we don't talk about it on the same level. It's why we don't talk about religion at dinner parties and at the water cooler because there is science and then there's not science. We're starting to come out of that a little bit, but that's where it began. And so we, in some ways, don't judge based on religion because religion doesn't have weight in our society like it used to because we are a scientific and an empirical society. Science is the best good and will make us better people. That was the whole modern movement. And out of that, I think, comes something is what Friedrich Nietzsche was talking about when he said God is dead. It came this idea of moral relativism. That because God isn't grounding our society anymore, morally we have nothing that is. If you go on with what he says in that phrase, he said God is dead, we killed him and he's not coming back. And he means that there's nothing now grounding our morality outside of you. There was a book written in the mid to late 80s um, by a philosopher um, and, and he talks about it going forward. His name was Alan Bloom and he said, essentially, I'll quote him, he said, there is no enemy other than the man who is not open to everything. The idea that we live in a world where you set your morality and I can't tell you not to because we don't have the fundamental common grounding anymore. And that's the world we live in now. So far be it for me to judge you. Far be it for me to say anything negative about how you live. It's the live your truth idea, you know? And so that's the one hand that we have things. And there's Christians that'll pull those verses and say we shouldn't judge because judgment is always bad. And there's a thread there that is the right way to think and that is good and that is honorable. But the scripture paints another side of that picture too. It's not don't judge unless you want to be judged and only God is the judge. Jesus says in John 7, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In verse 6 of our text today, he says, Do not give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before swine with the understanding that you have to decide what's a dog and what's a swine and what's a pearl. Intrinsically, we make decisions every day and those are judgment. Next week, we're going to talk about the role of false prophets and pastors and philosophies in the Christian life. To be watch out for those things. And in order to watch out for those things, you have to judge right from wrong. So it seems like the scripture is painting a duplicitous nature or, or thought pattern towards judgment. Don't judge, but judge. And so Jesus steps into kind of these two ideals. And he says, let me tell you what greater judgment looks like, what righteous judgment looks like. And I think it all has to do with the word itself. So in our text in verse one, do not judge so that you will be judged. That word judge there, um, I think we have to understand that we carry our own baggage into all the things that we read in the scriptures, which means you have definitions of words and you carry in your definitions to the words you read on the pages of the scriptures. We have to start there. What baggage do you bring in? And in the States today, when we talk about judgment, we see judgment as the art of tearing others down to build us up, quite simply. I'm going to tear you down so I feel better about myself. I'm going to say words about you not being able to get through TSA so I feel like a traveling savant, you know? I'm going to do these things so that I don't feel as badly as I could. It's confidence at the expense of others. So when we see the word judgment in our text, we have compressed that word down to simply mean condemnation. When we see judgment, we think condemnation all the time. That's why we've lost the ability to dialogue. Because I can't disagree with you without hating you. I can't disagree with you in a way that's positive. It's only and always negative. We've lost the ability to carry any idea of judgment that is positive, only negative. 
you're wrong and I hate you. So I disagree. That's why I disagree. The problem is, the word we deal with here has a pretty wide semantic range. And when I say semantic range, what I mean is that the broadness or the narrowness of the word itself to affect the actions of people. So for example, let me give you a couple. Um, The word love that we use has a broad semantic range. I love my daughter. I love my wife. I love this church. I love food, right? I love all these things. I love sleeping in. I love, I love so many things. In the Greek, though, there's broke down versions of that word to be more specific, to have a narrower semantic range. There's six different words for it. We see a few of those in the New Testament. So there's a specific word for how I love my brother. There's a specific word for how God loves me. There's a specific word for how I love my wife physically. And so when we talk about semantic range, what we mean is the broadness or the narrowness of the word itself. And we know it because, let's go back to it before, we love food. And let me tell you something. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, when I was growing up, I wanted a sandwich. I wanted my sandwich on bread. What do you want it on? Bread, right? How do you want your sandwich? I want it on bread. I go to Jersey Mike's now and I say bread. And they're like, dude, that doesn't do anything for me, you know? There's like seven different choices and one of them is gluten-free, which is a lie, all right? And so... What happens is you see the broadness and the narrowness of the semantic range. I'm going to say, I want bread, and they're going to say, be more specific. They're going to say, do you want white, wheat, rosemary, parm? The option is always rosemary, parm. If you're doing it wrong, you're not living into Jesus' greater life, okay? So the idea here in our text is when it says, don't judge, or you will be judged, we have to understand the word he's used there has a very broad semantic range to it, because here's the deal. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, Judgment didn't always carry with it the connotation of evil. It didn't always carry with it the connotation of condemnation. Judgment had both a negative side and a good side. Because judgment did bring corrective action, but it also restored justice. So judgment was someone who listened, who waited, and who acted in the ways of justice for the people that needed justice. That's why the Old Testament book of Judges is a good book for the Israelites, not a bad one. They wanted judges. <laughs> they yearned for judgment because they were being opposed. They were being beat down. And they thought, man, this is going to be good for It's going to restore justice to our people that God promised us. Justice wasn't just condemnation. It was also restoration. We have lost the nuance of the word judgment in our culture. And when we come to our text and we read it, we only think it's condemnation. There's a theologian who said, this then distorts our sense of what justice is about. It's not just condemnation for the bad, but restoration of what is right with its necessary good and bad consequences distributed accordingly. So there's nuance to the word judgment that we see in our text that we don't see in our culture, and it impacts how we read the word and how we live out the idea of judgment. But Jesus still says in the first verse, don't judge so that you will not be judged. And we have to talk about what kind of judgment was being done. He's talking to his people and to Pharisees. He's talking to people that use judgment as a source of condemnation so that they might be confident in themselves. He's using judgment here by saying, don't judge in a way that tears others down so that you might be built up. The Pharisees used uh, their judgment to elevate themselves over their people so that they could feel better and they could hold the right and the power over those around them. It's not a judgment in terms of I want to restore good, righteous justice. It's a judgment in terms of, I want to be critical. and I want to find fault so that I might feel better. So when Jesus says, don't judge, he's saying, don't judge in the kind of way that brings only condemnation. John Stott says, 
the centurious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. So Jesus says don't judge like that. Let me tell you why. There's really two reasons why. The first one is you can't judge like that because you don't know as smart as you are and as much as you've lived, you can never know man's motive. You can't. I can't look at you and see motive. Ever. Ever. I can see action that hopefully is motivated by motive, but it might not be. So you're here this morning, and I don't know why. You might be here because you're really trying to pursue Jesus. You might be here because there's free childcare for an hour. You might be here because you thought this was the village and you just got confused. I don't know why you're here this morning. I don't know if you're here just to appease your mom or dad. I don't know if you're here because you're grounded and this was your punishment. If so, talk to me. Let me talk to your parents. <laughs> I'll give them way better ideas. Um, I don't know why you're here. So Jesus says don't judge and it's fueled by this idea that you can't judge because fundamentally you can never know the motive of men. So what he's not saying is we don't discern right from wrong. What he's saying is we don't condemn because we can't see motive. Only God can. So if you want to sit in a position of condemnation over people like the Pharisees were doing, like some of the Christians were doing then or the followers of Jesus, if you want to sit in that position, he's saying you're, you're ill-equipped to do it. You don't have the tools you need to get the job done. And then he moves on from that and says, hey, not only aren't you supposed to judge because you don't have the tools to do it, no matter how much you think you do, you also aren't God and that's my job. So when we talk about the difference between condemnation and the difference between deciding or differentiating between good and bad, we have to understand that one is a day-to-day proposition and one is a whole commentary on a person's ability or standard or life. These Pharisees are making condemnations on a person, not a person's actions all the way. And so they would sit there and they'd say, because you do X, Y, and Z, you don't love God, you know? And that's what we do as Christians sometimes in our churches. That's why people walk in and feel judged and not loved. Is because following Jesus is so often more subjective than we want to give it credit for. Which means that one plus one isn't always two. Which means your motive really matters. So what we do is because we want to know where people are at, we make the subjective pursuit of loving Jesus and looking like Jesus more objective. We do check marks next to things that are Jesus-y. So did you do your devotion this morning? Did you, you know, pray with your family? Did you wear a one-piece bathing suit? These things that tell us if you really love Jesus. And here's the deal. I can't look at those things and know because I'm not God and it's really good that I can't do that and that I know I'm not God because I would make a terrible God in the first place. So Jesus is saying it's not our role because we don't have the tools to do it and because we're not God. And it's hard because sometimes it looks really easy, you know? It, It looks really easy to play God. It looks really, really easy to do his work, to do his role, to condemn somebody because we see what we've seen and we know for a fact that they can't love Jesus ever, 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 and they're out. But it's harder than it looks to play God, you know? (laughs) One, I know that because I have a hard time running my life. I couldn't imagine running everybody else's. And two, I I think we are more arrogant than we want to believe. I, I, I think golf's a great example. So again, if, if you're new here, if you're trying to get to know me, if you want to Get my jokes and get my analogies. Just study sports and food. That's all I got, people. And then my daughter. But that's really the three things I pull from. And I know this because this weekend is the PGA Championship and Tiger Woods didn't make the cut and he won the Masters. 
And I can tell you right now, the way I watch golf, which is passionately, is I watch golf and I just think, why didn't you make that putt? It doesn't look that hard. Why did he drive it over the bunker? Why did he come up 20 feet short on his pitching wedge? Like, is he just not trying? And then I remember that it's more difficult than it seems because I took my sister-in-law to the driving range for the first time this Thursday and she'd never played before. And you realize it's way harder than it looks on TV, you know? And so we come to this space of judgment and we think that we see the motive of man and we think that we can be God, but we forget that it's way harder than it seems. So Jesus says, do not then condemn a whole person because you don't have the tools and you can't imagine what it's like to be God. And you're not because you make a terrible God. And every time, every single time we condemn a person in that kind of judgment, every time we are playing God and putting ourselves in his role. That's why it says in James 4, 11 and 12, there's one lawgiver and one judge who's able to save and destroy. On the other hand, who is it to judge? Who are you to judge your neighbor? He's talking about that kind of judgment, not never discerning right from wrong, but never saying this person is part of the tribe of Jesus or out because I don't know their motive and I'm not God and it's not my job. Scott McKnight said, Christians can pronounce that it is good, that it is wrong, but not you are condemned by God. Jesus isn't telling us not to discern right from wrong and be deacons for just be beacons for justice. He's saying it's not our job to be a centurious critic seeking condemnation. But then Jesus doubles down. He says, So one, this isn't your role, and you don't understand it, and you're never gonna get it. This is not the kind of judgment I want you to step into or walk into. But then he says in, in verse two, for by the standard you judge, you will be judged, and the measure you use will be the measure you receive. So he's doubling down on his argument that you can never play the role of God. Because he's saying, even if we use your standard for good, which is far below my standard for good, even if we use yours, you won't measure up. There's a theologian named Francis Schaeffer. He's one of my favorites. He had an illustration. I'm just going to read it for you because it was good. Talking about our idea of judgment on other people. He said, if every little baby that was ever born anywhere in the world had a tape recorder hung around his neck, And if this tape recorder only recorded the moral judgments with which this child, as he grew, bound other men, the moral precepts might be much lower than the biblical law, but they would still be moral judgments. Eventually, each person comes to that great moment when he stands before God as judge. Suppose then that God simply touched the tape recorder button and each man heard, played out his own words, all those statements by which he had bound other men in moral judgment. He could hear it going on for years, thousands and thousands of moral judgments made against other men. Not aesthetic judgment, but moral judgments. Then God would simply say to the man, though he'd never heard, though he'd never um, heard of the Bible, now where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? (laughs) So he's saying, you can't judge others because you can't live up to your own standards and they're far below mine. I'm not gonna lie to you guys, I couldn't live up to my own standards of what I said yesterday for 10 hours in an airport if you put me before God and press play. So, when Jesus is telling us not to judge, he's telling us not to judge in a way that's critical. He's telling us not to judge in a way that condemns other people at their expense for our gain. He's telling us that we judge in the wrong way. And then he tells us a parable that reveals the motive that we often use when we judge. This is the part you've probably heard before. Let's read verse three and four. He says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye 
while there's still a beam in your own. So he sets the kind of this parable up in, um, in the home of a carpenter. And that makes sense because Jesus was raised as a carpenter. He said he got two brothers and they're working together on wood. And he says, they're doing some work on wood and you look over and you notice that your brother has a small speck, literally the word there is a piece of dust of wood, sawdust in his eye. And you say, wow, let me get that out for you. That's hurting you, but you have a huge beam in your eye. Let me, let me tell you something. We can argue over the size of the beam and the weight of the beam. And was it big and round or was it long or was it a hundred pounds? How small was the speck? None of that matters. That's not his point. None of that matters. He's talking about motive a couple of years ago. I've been married five years this week now, so nine years ago or something like that, there was a YouTube video that came out. And I don't know if you guys saw this. They made me watch it in premarital counseling. It was called It's Not About the Nail. You guys know what I'm talking about with this video? You need to go back and watch it because it's beautiful. I did again this week. And there's this couple talking. And this woman is just expressing how she has some problems in life. She has this headache that won't go away. And she has pain all the time in her body. And people stare at her and all her sweaters are snagged. And then she turns to a profile and you see that she has a nail sticking out of her forehead, you know? And the boyfriend, husband, whatever, says, well, maybe, maybe it's because you have a nail sticking out of your forehead. And she's like, it's, and over and over she just repeats, it's not about the nail. But he can't look past the nail to see maybe the root of the problem. And she just wants him to listen and enter into her pain. I'm still learning this lesson. I watched it again. And I thought, I have gone nowhere in my ability to be a good husband, you know? And so the point here is not the size of the wood or the size of the speck or how much sawdust was in the air, what kind of wood they were cutting. The point here Jesus is talking about is a motive by which we judge people when we judge people critically. He's saying it follows a pattern. And the pattern is quite simply, you look over and see somebody with a speck in their eyes. It starts with this idea of comparison. That I look at your speck and as I focus on your speck, my plank becomes almost invisible or smaller. Because the more I focus on your stuff, I don't have to focus on mine. This idea, the more I see and focus on your sin, the less I remember that I have any. I was trying, I was actually hanging with my wife a couple weeks ago, and like I said, I'm really good at judging, and I had just a moment of clarity. I said something that was judgmental about somebody, and it was probably, I don't know, about the way they looked or drove or whatever, I don't remember, and I just had this moment of conviction, and I thought, oh my gosh, and I leaned over my wife, and I said, I am really judgmental, and she just goes, yeah, <laughs> that was it. That was the whole thing. It wasn't, yeah, but you've come such a long way, or yeah, but at least you're recognizing it, or yeah, but, but, but I think, no, it's just, yeah. <laughs> like, thank you, everybody. Five years of marriage is when we start to be honest with each other, you know? And, and it's just the idea that if I focus on everybody else's shortcomings or failings or crocs, I don't see my problems. It's a cycle. It's a cycle of comparison. It's a cycle that leads me to forget my own stuff. And so he says, it's a cycle of comparison that then causes us to justify. So then I can look at his speck and be like, look how, look how much his speck is, is, is impacting the way he's cutting this wood. And as we justify that our stuff, our sin, our problems, isn't as bad as the speck I see in somebody else's life. And what we do is we downplay our stuff and upplay other people's stuff so we don't have to deal with our stuff make it seem like other sins are bigger than ours. Just a way of ignoring and justifying. I might not look at porn, but, 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 but I drink too much, you know? I might not do X, but at least I don't do Y. It's a cycle we fall into. And Jesus says, don't. Because if you're judging from that lens, 
You're judging in a place of condemnation and not restoration. You don't have the positive side of that word that's being used in Matthew 7, 1. So he's saying we compare and then we justify and it leads towards condemnation. He's asking how we judge, the motive by which we judge. If we judge out of a place that seeks to ignore our own fault, we're doing it in the wrong way. There's a theologian named Arthur Pink, and he said, the awful wickedness in the world, the despising of Christ, and the untold human sufferings make us groan within ourselves. The closer the Christian lives to God, the more he will mourn for all that dishonors him. Donald Hanger said, the obvious implication in our text is that an awareness of one's own faults will make one more charitable, one's judgment of others. So Jesus said, here's your method when you judge. It's usually out of a place that makes you ignore your own sin and that comes across as a condemnation. So he says, you want, you want a different way to do it? Look at verse 5. It says, you hypocrite. First remove the beam from your own eye and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And the first thing we have to recognize there, he's not saying don't do it. He's saying do it in the right way. He's not telling us don't ever judge. He's saying when you discern right from wrong, you have to do it in a way that starts with and ends with and points towards grace. Not that it starts with condemnation so I can ignore my own shortcomings. What he says is that judgment, discerning is necessary, but how you do it matters greatly. And so the first thing we notice when we See, Matthew 7, 5 is <laughs> that I think righteous judgment starts with self-reflection. Righteous judgment starts with self-reflection. He said, if you want to judge others, discern right from wrong, speak into others' people's life. If you want to do that, he says, start with yourself. If you're unwilling to start with yourself, you're not judging in a way that's good or righteous or points people towards restoration and redemption, the greater life. He goes on and he talks about how um, if you judge in the wrong way, people don't see the right version of God. There's a pastor in, I think, South Carolina. His name is J.D. Greer. I read him a lot. And and he says, essentially, if you want to know if you're doing judgment the right or wrong way, he said, it's wrong if or when you're more enraged at someone else's sin than you are embarrassed by your own. If you find yourself in a way more enraged in other people's sin than embarrassed by your own, you probably don't get the idea that self-reflection is a part of how we discern right from wrong and judge others, and you're coming at it from a condemnation point of view and not a grace mindset. Greater judgment starts with self-reflection, and we need this. Because this is why, as a church, when we don't do this, people think we're hypocrites. Because we don't live into or live out the life that we call others to live into when they follow Jesus. And they can look at us and say things like, well, you say that it's all about love, but you get divorced just as much. You say it's all about giving and sacrificing, but you don't give to widows and orphans. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 25, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. He's saying, he's saying, that if you don't live out the message you call other people into, you look ridiculous and you don't give it weight. That's why it mattered that Jesus lived a perfect life so nobody could question his motive. So nobody could say, but you don't believe this. He says, no, no, I believe this and I'm walking this out. Join me. That's the fundamental difference. Are we asking people to join us? (laughs) Are we asking people to live in a way that we haven't lived into yet? That's the difference between condemnation-based judgment and grace-based judgment. And so he says, start with self-reflection and I love how he ends it. He says, clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I think sometimes we overlook 
this aspect because we think we're the guardians of God's morality in our world. We forget that more often than not, and I'd, I'd be willing to say almost every time, <laughs> righteous judgment or righteous discernment starts with a relationship. He's not saying, hey, take the speck out of the guy's eye that's walking by you. He's saying, take the speck out of your brother's eye. When I was back in the student ministry game, we had a saying we used all the time, and it was, you have to earn the right to speak into someone's life. You have to earn it. You have to go to the baseball games. You have to go to the soccer practices. You have to be there when the parents are in the hospital or they're sick. You have to make them a meal. You have to show up. You have to earn the right to speak into somebody's life. Because if you do that, then they know it's motivated from a place of love and grace and restoration and not contempt and judgment and condemnation. So you have to earn that space. So Jesus says, when you judge, here's how you do it. You judge in a way that reminds people that you care about them and that there's something greater they should live into. There's an archbishop of Constantinople in the fourth century, and he said, correct him, but not as a foe, nor as an adversary expecting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicine. It's what's meant in Galatians 6 when he says, brothers and sisters, if a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness. Greater judgment starts with self-reflection, and it comes in the context of relationship. And here's where all this matters. Because the church isn't growing and because people think we're hypocrites, because people think that we care more about the stuff that we hate and not the stuff that we love, because people see Christians and they think that we're judgmental because people see us condemning the world around us instead of calling the world around us into a greater life that Jesus provided. Here's where it matters. It matters because it changes how I talk to people. It changes how I talk to people that walk through this door. It changes fundamentally how I look at somebody and say, do you realize there's a better way? Join me as we live it together. It's not an outside in, it's an inside out. Over the past probably 20 or 30 years, there has been a (laughs) kind of a, a change in how churches act and function, and I think it's been good. So the church 30, 40 years ago, followers of Jesus, at least here, um, in the States, had kind of a different mantra of calling people in, and there's been several books written about it, but the basic idea was there's three B words in each one. It's behave, believe, and belong, and what that meant was it's kind of our, our litmus test. It's kind of our modality around how we call people into the church. So the first thing you do is you've got to behave, and once you behave, you can walk in the door, and then you behave, and you look like a Christian. You walk in the door to a church. You start believing in Jesus, and then you belong to our community. So you behave first, then you believe in Jesus, then we accept you and you belong and we're all one big happy family in Jesus. That's how we've operated, whether we say it out loud as a church or not, for I think a long time. I don't think that's the way Jesus says to live. I don't think that's the judgment Jesus calls us into. Rather, I think he flips it upside down and he says you belong and then you believe and then you behave. And what that means is that people belong to this church just like you and I do because this church is made for people that need the same amount of Jesus. There's no hierarchy in that. One is motivated by grace and the other is motivated by condemnation. So people show up here and they belong here because we all need God. Fundamentally, it's why we start out with poor in spirit and the Beatitudes. It changes my conversation. Instead of speaking at them about how they should live, I speak to them like they're in this with me that need God with me. They belong here. And because they belong here, they learn and they start believing in the rhythms and ways of Jesus. Because they know that they're accepted here, then they can start to believe in his message. And as they believe in his message, they start to act like Jesus more. It's a grace-motivated kind of discernment. It's one that points towards and starts from the grace of Jesus. And if you look at it, that's exactly 
what Jesus did. <laughs> Jesus walked and talked and with the people that nobody talked to, that they already cast aside, that they already said you couldn't follow God because you weren't good enough or you were too much of, you lived too much of a lascivious lifestyle or you were a woman. And he went to them one by one and said, let me sit with you. Let me tell you I care about you. Let me tell you there's space for you. Let me tell you about the life that you could live if you find it in me. We see it with Nicodemus. We see it with Matthew. We see it with the woman at the well. I can give you more and more examples. We see it with Paul. I can give you more examples of this as the model and the modality for which Jesus calls us to live. So when he says, don't judge, he doesn't mean don't discern. He means the way that you do it matters. He isn't saying stop judging. He's saying that your motive and method matters. Because here's the deal. We can't stop judging. <laughs> we can't stop discerning right from wrong. Because if I truly believe in Jesus... If I truly believe that Jesus says live life this way and it's better, if I truly believe that honesty is more valuable than dishonesty, if I believe that community is more valuable than gossip, if I believe that we can't do life without each other but with each other, if I believe these things about the way God called us to live, if I believe that he created life and it's the only way to find fulfillment, if I don't share that with other people, I'm not sharing the love of God with other people. When we judge and discern the values of others and bring them into the values of Jesus, we're sharing the love of Jesus. If I believe there's life found in Christ, I don't love you if I don't tell you about it. You know? It's just that simple. So Jesus doesn't say don't judge. He says judge in the right way. Discern in the right way. One that doesn't end in condemnation, that only brings negative. But remember the words bigger than that. It points to restoration. The promise is that there's more. Because if we change the word, if we change our meaning, if we change how we do it, not from the outside in, but from the inside out that calls people to come along with us as we know and experience Jesus, it's not my job to tell you if you're gonna go to heaven one day. It's not my job to look at your life and say you're in or out. It's not my job to say, well, you're not living like it. You've probably backslidden. It's my job to simply sit there and say, if you love Jesus and I love Jesus, how can I help you love Jesus more today? How can I help you live into his rhythms and his ways more today? Because that's where we find life. It's a magician. I love this quote. I probably used it before. It's not going to stop me now. His name's Penn Jillette, and he's an atheist, and he talks about expressing value by expressing what you believe in. And he said, in a, in a love I said, he said, I'm just going to quote him. He said, I don't respect people who don't prophetize or share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that's not really worth telling them this because it could make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them all of that? How much do you have to hate them? I don't think Jesus is saying don't judge. I think he's saying don't judge in a way that brings on contempt, judge, discern, in a way that points people towards righteousness. Greater judgment seeks to restore, not condemn. Jesus says that judgment isn't a conversation about condemnation, but a reminder of restoration. And so he goes on in our text a few chapters later in Matthew 18 to talk about church discipline, you know? Talking the point of how we talk to the brothers and sisters in this room about living into the rhythms of Jesus. And so often we get lost and we don't see the forest or the trees and we think church discipline is kicking people out. That's not the point of what he's talking about. The whole point there is that we show people the seriousness of their sins so that they might find restoration. The point of judgment is always restoration, never condemnation. That's what Jesus came to do when he said it. I've come to bring life. That's what our job is too. But so often, so often, we fall into the trap of believing that our job is to show people where their shortcomings are and to show people where Jesus says there's something better. 
So he's not saying don't judge. He's saying judge in a way that focuses on you and judge in a way that points people towards me. Judge in a way that knows and understands how great the grace of God is. And if your motivation from when you judge others, discern right from wrong, is grace-oriented, then it paints a picture of a God who's gracious too. So as a church and as a people... (laughs) May we be a grace-oriented church in how we judge. May we show and paint the picture of a God who's been gracious towards us. And as we understand how gracious he's been towards us, may that change and shape the conversations we have with others when we call them into the greater life that Jesus has for them. Because that's what true love is. And in a world and in a church where people are less and less trusting of Christians, it's because we don't look at ourselves first to have a relationship with them before we start talking about them to, or to them about the God who we're trying to follow. So may we judge, may we discern with grace so that people might see the God we see, that people might see the life that he's called them into, and that we might all worship that God together because we all need the same amount of Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful you have grace for me. I'm thankful for your judgment that it shows me a better way to live. I praise the church. We press into that with humility and with wisdom. I pray we press into those conversations only through the context of relationship. I pray that you teach us what it looks like to share the values of Jesus in a way that shows the grace of God. So give us opportunities to be a little awkward and to show people that God loves them and that God is better for them. Give us the patience to have those conversations at the right time. Give us the boldness and the courage to proclaim the life that Jesus promises right here and right now as we bring a little heaven to earth. And I pray these things in his name.